And good morning. My name is Ryan Moore. It's good to be with you all and uh, to be bringing you God's word as we've been in the, the book of Exodus this fall and we will be in it next week as well. And then we'll transition into something different. But one of the things we're looking at in the book of Exodus is how God is calling and shaping and redeeming a people to himself. And so as we read chapter 17, we're just going to read verses 1 to 7. But we're really what we're doing is we're taking together this morning chapters in the chapter 15 and then this portion of 17. And before I read 17, as far as the Old Testament goes, this is one of these, these, these chapters of story that has really shaped and cult, captivated me, really. Um, and, and, and maybe not to get too, um, you know, dramatic about it, but I think something that has shown me who I am and shown me who the grace of God is more than what we see here um, in Israel after having just experienced uh, one of the most magnificent and gracious acts of God in all of time. So having said that, this is, this is the tail end, sort of the tail end of these three stories where Israel um, is contending and grumbling with God in the wilderness. But let's, let's begin here at verse 1 of chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. It's really the wilderness of Sinai. There's no play on words there. Wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Mashah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for who you are. We ask now that you would do a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. I guess we're about two, two and a half weeks removed of, of Halloween. Not ready to give that up yet. We're going to hang on to that before we move on to Thanksgiving. But I just wanted to say that I thought that my family did Halloween pretty well. I thought we were really excited about Halloween as a family in general. We participated. We, we do costumes. We do candy. But I had, I had no idea um, how much behind the eight ball we really are until I, I witness and experience what at least our neighborhood, but I'm sure it's the greater Fort Worth community as well, does for Halloween. Um, 
to, to just kind of consider what we saw as we left our front porch. Um, t- there were lawn ornaments that, um, that were the size of cars that people handed candy out of, had cannons firing out of. There were lawn, there were uh, huge movie screens set up in people's lawns as well, so that if you, I guess you get tired um, going from house to house, you could stop and watch a movie. There were block parties, which those are two words that go together really well. Block parties uh, for Halloween, which it was embarrassing that I only had one block party to go to when many other people had others. But this was just a taste, though, of, of, of how just wonderful and great just something like Halloween could become. And I, I think our girls really began to get that. I think that they began to understand and appreciate what was happening, you know, on, on such a level as it was. You know, we got them all dressed up. They got the candy. Um, they got excited for the bounty that waited uh, at a place where you have houses that seem to go on forever, but they're only like 20 feet apart. And so, you know, it was just, it was, it was, it was just great. And then you know, something, though, that even happened that's never happened to me at Halloween, and that is, I didn't, we didn't make it around the block before our bags were full and the girls were done. They wanted to go home and they had all they, they could take. And I'm just thinking, no, we can go a little further. Like, do you, do you know how much we can get? This is amazing. And, you know, they were done. Halloween won. We got home, and of course, the best part of Halloween is always dumping the bags out, sorting the candy, hoarding it as well. We gave thanks and we ate. We consumed an unhealthy amount of sugar, which is okay because it's Halloween, right? That's what we did. I think Ada and I are pretty good parents. I think we're pretty cool. Um, I think that we do things for our children that are incredible, if I don't say so myself, that they just can't fathom or maybe, maybe appreciate. They can't appreciate what it is that we do for them. And I mean, as a parent, the, the night of Halloween, like you, you can almost have as much candy as you want in our household. That's our rule. Have at it, right? Then there's other rules, like even the couple of days after Halloween, you can have candy for snack. You can have it at meal. What parent does that? We just have one rule. Don't take the candy without asking. That's it. Love and limits. That's the Morehouse. It's pretty, it's pretty gracious, I think. It's pretty gracious. So you can imagine my surprise, confusion, and maybe even hurt if I stop and process it long enough. When I found in the days following Halloween, while vacuuming in the family room, Hidden stockpiles of candy wrappers and Snickers stuffed underneath the couch and the chairs of our house. And as I'm rounding one chair with a vacuum cleaner, I see this wrapper kind of hanging outside of the, of the chair. And I'm like, well, I can get this. And, but then I realize there's a lot more. And I push the chair back and it's like eight to ten pieces of candy. And, and I'm thinking, do we have rats in this house? And I push back the couch and there's more. It's everywhere. And I'm like, we don't have rats. We have kids, you know. This is, what is happening? But as I picked up these wrappers, I began to ask myself this. Why? Why? Why do my kids feel the need, right, after everything that we've done for them, to go behind our back like this and to steal that candy? Considering all that they had experienced 
When I've clearly said, it's okay to take and eat. It's okay, do this, do this. What have we actually withheld from them? After all, I'm the reason for the candy in the first place, am I not? Right? It, it, there is no candy without mom and dad. And we have given them the candy to the kids because mom and dad are great, right? We, we, <laughs> we have done this. How can they doubt us? How can they doubt our care and concern for them after all that they ex- experienced in the days following and the days preceding with Halloween and all that it was? Not to mention that they just went to Disney World a month ago. How does this happen? How do they forget? As we come to this section in Exodus, this is post-rescue or post-Halloween. We read and observe behavior from Israel that at first glance, absolutely, at first glance, seems confusing and almost unbelievable given everything that Israel has experienced at this point in time. But as we look a little closer, what initially seems almost irrational becomes extremely familiar to us. And that is in the presence of unexpected circumstances, in the the presence of unexpected hardships in life, when God just isn't meeting our expectations, right? When we find ourselves saying, I did not sign up for this. It is in those moments when we doubt his goodness for us the most. And we do it regardless, regardless of any past experiences that would say otherwise. And so instead of trusting God and sort of allowing that trust to manifest itself in obedience, which is what God wants for Israel at this point in time, we often move in the direction of self-trust, right? We, we tend to try to take the bull by the horns, right? We want control over the situation, maybe even to get ourselves out of it or just to numb ourselves for a while as, until it passes. I don't know, whatever it is. But before you know it, regardless of anything that might have happened yesterday to prove God's love and his faithfulness and his goodness to you, you find yourself praying or maybe just mumbling, saying, God, are you here? Are you among us or not? Where are you? And many of us come in here this morning, without a doubt, asking that very question. God, are you among us? Where are you? As we enter this chapter of Israel's life, we see that part of the process of God calling and shaping and redeeming a people to himself does not go, does not go without unexpected hardships. It does not go without testing. In fact, we are promised them because faith that is not tested is not faith at all. And obedience is rarely ever practiced in the absence of trial. But what we find along the way is that God never leaves us. He never leaves us. In fact, he's the one guiding and leading us into the wilderness in the first place. I really have one question and one thing to look at here, and that is the question of where do we doubt God the most? Where do we doubt God the most? My hope is that I would kind of get out of the way of this narrative and let it do the talking. And so to that end, we'll see if that happens. But where do we question and doubt God the most? That is it, if you're looking for points. The answer there, I've already said, we doubt God the most 
in the presence of unexpected circumstances in our life. And the way that I'm defining unexpected hardships or circumstances is really, uh, as Christians, it, it's, it's when God does not meet our expectations for life. When we find ourselves in the seasons of life saying, I did not sign up for this, where are you? See, as Israel exits Egypt, God leads them into the wilderness for testing. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. But while we all love the rescue, we love the rescue. We love the grace, right? We love um, where we are going. None of us, none of us desire, nor do we often expect the wilderness. For Israel, where God is taking them is truly unexpected. But more challenging than that, and probably more challenging for you and I, their expectations of God, what they want him to do, are about to be challenged in the most critical of ways. So much so that regardless of all that they have experienced thus far, leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. Let me say that one more time. Crossing a sea that has been parted. This is what we are. We are less than two months from this, y'all. So let let that kind of hang out there. There's some humor here, right? That will not be enough to overcome the fears and the anxiety brought on by their present circumstances. Which leads them to ask, God, where are you? Are you among us or not? But how did Israel get there? God must have done something to break their trust. Picking up where we left off last Sunday, we read chapters 14 and 15 of the Great Rescue and so as we enter sort of the last part of chapter 15, you know, you might remember there was this song. You know, what do you do after you experience something like the Exodus, something, something so super, supernatural, something that will, will be the defining, re- redeeming act for God's people until Jesus uh, dies and bodily resurrects from the dead, right? What do you do after you experience something like that? Well, you write a song about it. You write a song about it. So that you don't forget it. This is where we left off last week. And by the end of chapter 15, after three days, just three days of traveling from the sea and into the wilderness, Israel is in a place without water. God leads them to Marah, the text says, where there is water, but it's bitter tasting. It might sound a little like they're high maintenance, but it's probably contaminated of sorts. They can't drink it. Unexpected hardship number one. Undrinkable water, how are we going to survive? So what does Israel do? They grumble. They complain to God. To underscore what's happening here, this is the first time in Scripture that this word for grumble is actually used. And it's actually the name of the place in which they are grumbling. So God tells Moses, though, to throw a log in the water, and it becomes sweet. I would call that a miracle. And then the text says, there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all the statutes, now my words, all will go well for you. Okay. And then this story ends with them being taken to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. I love the detail. This is an oasis. And they encamped there by the water. In other words, God brought them to their happy place and provided for them. This is the first hardship, the first unexpected hardship that Israel finds along the way in their being 
in their post-rescue. But it's also where we find that God is testing them. And I, I couldn't get around this. We, we, this is probably one of the most difficult things to begin to talk about today is this idea of testing. And I want to take just a little bit of a time to sort of eddy, if you will, to the shore here. And let's, let's just define this and talk about what does it mean for God to test Israel? Why is he testing him? And, and does he test me? Does he test you? Okay. As I said, this is one of the most difficult questions in Scripture because our stories in this room are so different. No two are alike, yet all of us walk in here each morning, as we said, figuratively carrying the broken pieces of our past and even of our present. And certainly, testing comes in the form of hardship, but not all hardship is testing. And I have to be very clear about that. Okay? And that's why this is so difficult. Here's what we can say about it for now and what I want you to what I want to leave you with. The purpose of testing, the purpose of hardship for Israel here is to produce and to cultivate trust and obedience as God's people for the purpose of showing the watching world who their God truly is. It's a mouthful, let me repeat that. The purpose of testing Israel here is to produce and to cultivate trust and obedience as God's people for the purpose of showing the watching world who their God truly is. God does not test us, excuse me, God does test us to produce trust and obedience. He does. But is every hardship that we encounter a test? No, it's not. I'll add this, God never tests us by means of injustice. And I need to be very clear here. God is not testing you, for example, through the tragedy of abuse that you've experienced. He's not testing Paris right now through terrorism. Does he work all things for the good of those who love him? Absolutely. Absolutely. But God never tests us by means of injustice. And I cannot stress that enough Because it's extremely important for me to know that you're not walking out of here this morning. Reflecting on some past experiences, for example, when maybe you were the victim. Wondering, oh, maybe God was just testing me. See, Israel is not a victim here to kind of come back to the text. Israel is not experiencing acts of injustice by the hand of God here. It's really opposite. They are really in the cradle of grace, as we'll see in a minute, which sometimes, too, is a difficult place to be. One of the ways we understand testing as it pertains to Israel is connected to who they are called to be at this point. And as we've said this fall, they're called to be a holy nation. They are called to be a kingdom of priests. But they will fail if you've read ahead of the story. They will fail, and in time, there will come a Jew who will be Israel for the rest of the world, and his name will be Jesus. This is the story of the gospel. And he will be tested in the wilderness by Satan himself. And it will be this perfect trust and obedience to the Father that will not only win the day then, but will also win you as well. And so in one sense, is when we talk about how the Bible speaks of testing, in one sense, testing doesn't have anything to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do about God's redemptive plans for all of his people. So God never tests us by means of injustice, 
Most testing involves hardship, but not all hardship is testing. And that's, that's what we need to kind of leave it this morning. So as we enter back into the story with Israel, they are at Elim, which is the oasis city. But Elim is not their final destination as great as it is. God, why why wouldn't you stay here? This is awesome. But he moves them a second time. And he takes them into the Sinai wilderness. And this gets us to chapter 16. And this just says 15 days. After 15 days. And there was no food. Unexpected hardship number two. There's no food. How will we live? But their grumbling intensifies here. It doesn't doesn't get, you know, oh, well, maybe just like he gave us water to drink. Maybe he'll give us food as well. No, it intensifies. Verse 3, Israel said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. That's pretty serious. When we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. See, they're not just contending with God because they have no food. They're actually saying that they would rather go back to being slaves in Egypt. They'd rather be dead than to be out here free. And you've got to be thinking, how can you be saying this? How can Israel be saying this after everything they've experienced? Now, now not just the crossing of the Red Sea, not just the plagues before that even, but, but this, just 15 days ago, 15 days, there was bitter water and now it's sweet. Now, you don't have any food, and the only thing that you can do is wish that you were dead. You've got, you've got to enter into this a little bit. So God gives Moses specific instructions. This is a total another lesson for another day about what, what God is about to do. And what is he about to do? Of course, he's about to rain bread and quail from the sky. <laughs> okay? All right? At some level, as I said, you've got to see the humor of the story and the way that God provides the most incredible ways, the way that he attacks what is so personal to Israel. All right? Their survival. In just some of the most remarkable ways, this is faithfulness and kindness and love on a scale that probably all of us in this room would love to experience, right? You're getting kind of hungry, you walk outside. Let's just see if some of this, maybe not manna, but like some pizza can kind of come from the sky or something so that I would know that God is good. But Israel gets this, and again, it's another one of these moments of unexpected hardship that brings doubt into their, into their lives and into their who they are. And this brings us to chapter 17 where God moves Israel again and apparently in stages, but this time they come to a place, not with bitter water, but it's actually worse. There's no water there at all altogether. Unexpected hardship number three. By now you and I are thinking, don't panic. Don't panic. I think God can do something here, but that's not what Israel does. And as we read this morning in short, they threatened to kill Moses, their leader and representative, the one who's actually, um, uh, embodying God for them and doing the things that God has called them to do. They want to kill him. And then they ask again why they brought them out here to die along with their kids. It, it seems comical, but it, it's, it's also extremely serious. Uh, they, are, they are serious. They are, they, they, are, they are afraid. And perhaps maybe all this kind of begins to, to, to kind of seem to us as though, you know, this is just, how could they do this? How could they do this? But all this culminates in Israel asking, God, are you among us or not? This is where this leaves us. 
And in spite of Israel's doubt, in spite of their questioning in the face of unexpected hardship, God brings water from the most unexpected places from nothing. He produces water from a rock. And that is what I meant when Israel, when I said that Israel's not a victim here. They are in the cradle of grace, which is still sometimes a very difficult place for us to be. God has not left them, and he's provided for them in every single way. But in spite of all their grumbling, in spite of all the ways that they have mistrust, in spite of all the ways that we look at them and say, well, how could you do that? Don't miss the grace in this text, which is that the water still flows for them. The water still flows. God and his grace is abundant for all. Surely that is God's goodness and faithfulness to a stiff-necked people who will wake again tomorrow and doubt all over again. Now, are you starting to see the pattern? Unexpected hardship, Israel doubts, God provides, and Israel trusts again. Until another unexpected hardship enters Israel's life. And we do the whole thing over and over and over again. Where does Israel question and doubt God's goodness? In the face of unexpected hardships. And this is exactly what we do as well. This pattern is our pattern. But why is that? Why is that? And this is... A little bit of application here for Israel and for us. Our present circumstances often prove more powerful than any past experiences. This is how your kids can experience the most amazing Halloween. I'm not bitter. At your gracious hand, might I add. And days later, question whether you're good or not. This is how we can come to church one Sunday and be reminded and refreshed all over about what God has done for us. But then come Monday, find ourselves saying, I didn't sign up for this. Where are you? And this isn't, this isn't saying that it's not inappropriate to question and to cry out. But there's a different level of that here that's not being worked out in the form of obedience for Israel. And I would say for us as well. Our present circumstances often prove more powerful than any past experiences And see, the Bible isn't showing us Israel here saying, look, can you believe this? Can you believe what they're doing? Can you believe that after all that I've shown them, all that I've done for them, how gracious I've been? The Bible isn't showing you this to point the finger at Israel. The Bible is showing us this to point the finger at ourselves. Not to shame us, not to shame us at all, but to actually call us back to God's goodness and his faithfulness over and over again. This is not an Israel problem. And this is the sweetness of this text. But also the bitterness of it as well. This is a me problem. My present circumstances. Often prove more powerful. Than anything that God has done for me. Up to that point. And it's absolutely the reason. Why I need grace. But because that's often true for me, when God doesn't meet my expectations, when my instincts, uh, or, or when he doesn't meet my expectations, my instincts then are also not to move in the direction of trust and obedience, which is what he wants. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But to actually move in and to try to take control of the situation, to bring some type of a predictability of life to it. In other words, like Israel, I choose to want to go back to slavery. Which for us isn't literal slavery, but it's spiritual slavery. 
We default back into the security we think our sin brings us instead of trusting what God might do with us. What happens when pressure comes in your life? Where do you go? For many of us in this room, often what we do is we get busy. I was thinking about um, the story of a friend of mine that he shared once he got married that uh, they had, you know, this season of just wonderful life. They, they were married, had dual incomes, could do whatever they wanted, no kids at this point, and life was great. Had all these plans. You remember that? Remember, remember plans? And they would go and, and, and got to eat, whatever it was. And all of a sudden, one day, out of, out of the blue, unexpected, um, she got pregnant. And then, you know, and initially, that's a celebrating you know, it's a time of celebration, right? Let's, 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 say, let's say yay to that, yay to that. But he goes on to talk about how this, this felt more like a crisis than it did a blessing because of everything that they were going to have to give up. But he goes a little further because what makes the story more interesting is at this point in time, and they were, you know, in seminary, at this point in time, they didn't have health insurance. And so they were looking at at least a $12,000 bill for this baby, which began to create even more anxiety, even more crisis and hardship in their life. So what does is, what is my friend say that he does? Well, he began to get busy, he said. And he goes, I, said, I would run to the internet and investigate cheap ways to have a kid. <laughs> I was trying to figure out uh, if my wife, how long she could hang on to her present job and if she could get health care. He would get overwhelmed and feel, feel that worry with none of, or excuse me, we get overwhelmed, but none of that worry would be filled by the things that he got busy with. It didn't solve anything. But at least I was doing something, he said. And this is the part that gets me. I wish that the self-reliant response to crisis was an isolated instance. But if I'm honest, it's how I respond more often than not when life circumstances thrust me into crisis. So what happens when pressure comes? What happens when things don't go as we want them to go? What happens when God doesn't meet our expectations, right? We get busy. Or at least we angle for some type of control. And whatever it is, we're often drawn to something that is familiar to us. That's why it's a default. For some, being busy is what's familiar. That's the default. For others, we don't know how to live without crisis, and so we create it. It's become too familiar to us. And the reason I go here, do you know where Israel wants to go? They want to go to someplace familiar. That's the irony of all this. They want to go back to Egypt where they could count on three square meals a day. And as irrational as that sounds, this is beginning to look a little more familiar, isn't it? Israel's desire to return to Egypt is about control. It is about bringing predictability to life where God has taken us someplace where there is none. It is about being in a place that is familiar and consistent regardless of what it does to you and no matter how bad it is. And the irony is, as we say, as we look upon Israel and we scratch our heads as to why they would want to return to this place of slavery, why they'd want to go back to Egypt and to the wilderness, all of our defaults that we fall back into when the pressure comes function the same. It is a return to slavery if it is not a movement that is beginning to shape and create in us trust and obedience in God.
it is at this point for me, as I've looked at chapters 15 and 17 for a long time, where I began to point the finger at Israel, that I see myself so clearly and hopefully begin to see the graciousness of God more clearly as well. Because the beauty of this, the beauty of, of, of bringing me and bringing all of us into this place where we begin to see what we need, we begin to see where we fall back on, we begin to see how it is that over and over and over again, regardless of our past experiences, regardless of God's faithfulness, we are still prone to doubt. That is actually in those moments where we're also reminded of our need for God in the first place. And that is what's happening to Israel here. Where does this leave us then? God wants our default to change. He wants what's familiar to us to change. And what he wants to become familiar to us, what he wants our default to be is just that, trust and obedience in him. What if where you find yourself this morning is exactly where God has led you? What if the place where God is not meeting your expectations is exactly where God wants you to be? And see, this gets to the, the point of the whole story. One of the, one, of the, one of the things that is just unnoticed throughout all of this is that what is actually causing Israel's problems, what is causing their hardship, has everything to do with where God is actually leading them. That he's the one bringing them into these places. That he's the one who is there, whose hand is upon them. It's the most overlooked detail of the entire narrative as Israel struggles in the wilderness. That they are actually there because this is where God has led them. That it's not by mistake. That it's not by design. But rarely do we ever think that in the midst of hardships that this is exactly where God might want me to be. That it's his kindness to us that would shape us into the people that he's called us to be as well. Instead, we are often quick to rush into some type of explanation, maybe as a friend or just personally. Like Job's friends, we come in and we can sort of assign some type of spiritual answer to this. Uh, We think that maybe this is Satan's attack on you. And what you need to really do is uh, create better defenses in your life. Right? You need to get get with it. And and Satan is real, and Satan is all about the destruction of what is good. But one of the things that's interesting about explanations like this is that, what does it do? It causes us to say, the answer to this is to create more defenses in my life. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but what I'm doing at this moment is just what Israel does, is angling for control again. When what God might want you to do at this point in time, because he's actually led you there, is to stop. Just stop. To wait on him. To pray. But this seems furthest from our minds. Rather, we grapple for control, thinking if I do A, B, and C, then everything else will be well. And the danger to that is that people who are always able to fix themselves never need a savior. And this is one of the things that, 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 that God is going to continue to try to instill in Israel as he's calling them to be his people, you are going to need me more than you ever, ever dreamed. This is, this is, this is the cradle of grace. It's no coincidence that the places that, that God leads Israel are the places that pose a threat to their uh, very survival. 
places without food or water. But it's equally interesting that in places such as the ones with the 12 springs and the 70 palm trees, right? The happy place. There's no grumbling and complaining there. You don't need a savior in paradise. As we said with the plagues, God is coming for his people and he will not hold anything back. What could be more gracious than that? What could be more gracious than him leading us into circumstances where we have no other choices but then to become people which then have instilled in us and created in us a default that would fall back on trust and obedience and his goodness for us? This is what he longs for in his people. And this is what he longs for you this morning as his people as well, regardless of the things that you are experiencing. One point of application here. As you think about the hardships you face, as you think about the ways that God is not meeting your expectations, as you think about all um, that, 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 that we have even discussed here this morning, the call for us is not to get busy. The call for us is not to move into the default areas of familiarity. The call for us is to stop and to pray and to exercise the discipline often of waiting, of waiting. And look, I hate waiting. And as it turns out, so do little girls in the midst of Halloween. We all get it. That's who we are. But what I want my girls, what I want for them becomes the same thing that I want for you and the same thing that I want for myself. If I could go back to that, is as they begin to doubt and the question, as they begin to devise plans uh, to change their circumstances, I want them to stop. I want that to be their default and to consider maybe this is exactly where mommy and daddy have put us. All right? Maybe they are good. Maybe it's best for us to stop and to trust them in the midst of the hardship and in the midst of the unmet expectations. And that's the first point of application. To stop and to wait. To consider that. And this is the last thing that any of us consider in the midst of hardships and unexpected Um, circumstances. But if that's true, we need people who are willing to watch and wait with us. We need people in our lives who are willing to enter into that hardship. We need people to wait with us who are willing to come in and say, I will watch with you. One of the most beautiful themes of all scripture, Jesus in the garden before his his hour had come, what did he want? He just wanted people to, to be with him, to watch with him. And they couldn't do that. Sorry. We need people to do that. Look, explanations are wonderful. Um, literature is great. Counseling is, we can't, we can't part from it. But oftentimes what we need more than anything is for somebody to come into the midst of the unexpected hardship with us and to sit and to watch with us and to be there with us and to, to model for us, to help model for us what it looks like to trust and obey even when things just seem out of control are we willing to wait with others? And are we willing to go there and be there with them? Are we allow to allow others to wait with us. The promise here, though, the promise that you can't miss this, that gives us the ability um, for us to wait with others, for us to deal with our circumstances, no matter how alone that we feel, no matter how hard that they get, is that Jesus goes with you as well. And that's really the gospel in this text. Just as God does not leave Israel in the wilderness, just as he's the one that's actually moving them to these places. So Jesus goes with you into every dark place of your life. And at first, that may not sound exciting to you. 
but there comes a point where that begins to be the one thing that you just hold on to, the one thing that you know that I don't know where I'm going, I don't know when this is going to end, but that is not an example of God leaving you. That is God's presence, a promise of God's presence among you, that he would go with you into those places. No matter how hard they are. Paul will look back on the story in 1 Corinthians 10 and <clears throat> actually say this about this. This is, this is wild. He'll say that the rock that Israel drank from is Christ. You kind of shake your head. And in verse 4, he says that for they drank. This is talking about Israel. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Let me say that again. That followed them. And the rock was Christ. In other words, they drank from the spiritual rock that went with them into the wilderness, into the hardships of their lives, not to punish or kill them, but to offer them real life as God's people. This is what it means to be called and shaped as God's people. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances. My prayer for you in the midst of this, in the midst of unexpected hardships, which are coming, and Lord knows they are already here, is to know that Jesus is there with you. To know that he has gone before you, that he has followed you there. That in spite of your doubting, in spite of your wondering, in spite of the mess that you think that you are, the water still flows, y'all. The water still flows. God's graciousness to his people still comes to you. And is available for all who would want it in Jesus Christ. Now look, would that be more convincing tomorrow than anything that God would prove today of his faithfulness and goodness to you? Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Israel and how we understand who you are through them. Or we thank you that you are gracious enough to include these stories that are a mess. They are not the best of Israel, but they are the best of you. And that is why you've given those to us, though, that as we go throughout life and we experience the things that life throws at us, we know that you are with us and we know that this is for our good. Lord, would you continue to call us to that? Even when we will and are prone to doubt and to question and to forget tomorrow of your goodness and faithfulness for us today, Lord, would it be enough? We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.